integrity, loyalty, trustworthiness, honor, dependability. You know, if you're smart, those are the kinds of qualities you look for in a friend. And even more, they're the kind of qualities that each of us should strive to attain to. Amidst a world that values style more than it values character, that values skill over virtue, education over goodness, achievement over ethics, you and I who are Christ followers, we ought to stand out. We ought to stand out as those who uh, both value and who practice doing what's right instead of just doing what works, who are more committed to being fair than we are to gaining an advantage. We ought to stand out as those who keep our word even when others don't and who seek the good of others rather than just seeking after selfish ambition. You know, if you make the statement to a group of friends that your word is your bond, it shouldn't cause them to roll their eyes. And when you make a handshake deal, others ought to be able to consider that a done deal. But I'm not just talking about keeping a, a set of rules for the sake of keeping rules, you know, just to show how vastly superior you are to everyone around you. No, understand that even integrity when lived out in nothing more than isolation, just leads to arrogance and pride. It's gotta be lived out in relationship. That's where it's hardest too. The relationship with God and with others, there when we have integrity, integrity brings peace. You see, it's all about how we treat other people and how our lives impact them. By the way, God made us for relationship. He made us for relationship with him and for relationship with each other. You, you just can't read the Bible and have it make any sense as an isolationist. Everything in scripture reflects that we are to live in relationship with others. As so much of scripture is God telling us how it is that we're to, to treat each other, how it is that we are to represent him and reflect him to others. And what it is we're to do when we or others mess that all up. And yet we live in a culture that does not value selfless or sacrificial relationships. In today's world, oh, you're told, no, 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 you need to have boundaries. You need to eliminate those relationships that you don't think are beneficial to you. And any relationship that might be costly to you, well, we're going to label that as toxic. Scripture, including our passage for this morning, points us in an entirely different direction. It points us towards sacrificial, loyal, and yes, costly friendship. So grab your Bible. Grab your Bible and find 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at all 42 verses of chapter 20. Uh, will, you, will you do this? When you find 1 Samuel 20, will you stand uh, join me and I will read our passage. You can follow along in your own Bible. First Samuel chapter 20, of course, beginning in verse one. 
David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, no, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this from me? This can't be true. But David said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know that he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I've done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out that my father has evil intentions against you, I, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered David, come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. Uh, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable toward you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so that you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this incident began and stay beside the rock Ezel. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. And then I will send a servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, because the Lord as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no problem. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat at his usual place on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat facing him and Abner took his place beside Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. 
He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He's unclean. However, the next, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the mill either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town and my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back. Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table, fiercely angry, and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, run and find the arrows I'm shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow and Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, the arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called out to him, hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone Azel, fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is our teacher. And God, we ask that this morning, in the midst of this time, in this place, that you would speak to us from your word. God, that you would speak to the situations and the circumstances of our lives. God, that you would address us specifically and individually. That your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our lives. And God, beyond that that you would transform us, that you would change us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might go out from this time in this place changed, different than we came in. Work in the midst of this time, Lord. We ask you to do it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in, in my Bible, the subheading for this chapter says, and Jonathan protects David. 
Now, that certainly is part of the story, but I would say it's not the main thing about this story. I think a better heading would probably be David helps Jonathan see reality. And this chapter is not about David or Jonathan actively protecting David. Rather, what it's about is David helping Jonathan to see the reality and that Saul, his father, really is trying to murder David. Twice, Saul has already tried to shish kebab David with a spear. And when that didn't work, he sent assassins to his house. And so David, well, yeah, he's pretty convinced that Saul wants to kill him. But Jonathan, as Saul's son, he just can't seem to bring himself to face that reality. And Jonathan's perspective, let's be honest, it's unreasonable. But because David is a loyal friend to him, instead of just cutting ties, instead of just moving on, instead of simply leaving, since as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, in humility, David considers Jonathan as more important than himself. David walks through a diagnostic scenario of sorts that he has no need of just so that his friend Jonathan doesn't feel abandoned or betrayed or used when David goes away. Think about it. David could have fled without any of this. Remember our context. Twice already, Saul has tried to run a spear right through David. And twice, Saul has ordered others to kill David. David had to flee. He fled to, uh, to Nioth, if you remember. And there with Samuel, uh, he found that God was supernaturally protecting him, uh, both from the assassins that Saul sent and from Saul himself. But what does David do? Here we read that David leaves this place of protection. He leaves Nioth and he returns to Gibeah. Why? Well, look at verse 1. David fled Nioth and he came to Jonathan. And David returns to Gibeah in order to return to his friend Jonathan. And he asks Jonathan, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father that he wants to kill me? David wants to know. I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable question. Why is your dad trying to murder me? Uh, but Jonathan, Jonathan doesn't get it. <laughs> His response to David is like, what? Dude, calm down. No one's trying to kill you. And look what verse in verse two, what Jonathan said to him. My father doesn't do anything without telling me. Why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. Can you imagine how that last bit sounded to David? And Jonathan is basically saying, dude, you're imagining things. You just don't understand my dad. And David's thinking, no, I, I think I understand him very clearly. The honest truth is here, Jonathan is clueless. He's delusional. He's ignoring reality. And that makes him downright dangerous to David. Today, we would label this as a toxic relationship. And conventional wisdom would say that David should simply walk away. He should cut his ties and he should make himself scarce. But remember, David has made a vow to God. 
He has vowed to God that he would be a loyal and faithful friend to Jonathan. And that vow, it doesn't have an escape clause. David made an unconditional promise. He, he gave his word. He can't just walk away. He's going to have to work this through with Jonathan. So verse three, and David reasons with Jonathan. He says, listen, your father knows that I found favor with you. you think about this, Jonathan, your dad's not going to tell you. And undoubtedly, David says, there is but a step between me and death. David pulls Jonathan aside. He says, listen, let's review the facts. Twice he's tried to run me through with a spear and he sent assassins after me. And Jonathan, do you not remember? It wasn't that long ago. He asked you to kill me. Wake up, man. You're in denial. And look at verse four. Jonathan is, is convinced, maybe not that, that David is right, but he has come to a place where he is, to, he is willing to do whatever David requests of him. And so he says, whatever you say, I'll do. Seems to me he doesn't yet see it. Why else would they go through all that is contained in this chapter? Yet, because Jonathan also has vowed loyal, faithful friendship to David, he is willing to take the time and the effort to consider David's rather crazy notion that his father is trying to kill him. You know, within a covenant relationship like marriage, both people have to be willing to think about the other. You have to consider not only your perspective, but also the perspective of the other. You have to act compassionately as specifically taking the other person's perspective into account. Whether or not you see it the way that they see it, whether or not you get it. And by the way, uh, calling their perspective delusional, that definitely won't help. <laughs> so starting in verse five, David lays out a plan to help Jonathan see. Uh, the next day is going to be the new moon celebration. And uh, David would be expected to eat dinner at Saul's table. Uh, but instead, David says, I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. And if your father misses me at all, you say that David urgently requested my permission to go home to Bethlehem. And if he says good, then, well, your servant is safe. You were right. But if he becomes angry then you'll know that you were wrong and you'll know that he has evil intentions. That's the plan. Saul's response to David's absence will tell all. Uh, Jonathan will see for himself either Saul's ambivalence or his rage and his thirst for David's death. And understand, understand what David is doing is risky to him. Uh, David is, is leaving all this in Jonathan's hands. He is making himself exceptionally vulnerable in this situation. And so look at verse eight. David says, listen, deal kindly with your servant. You've brought me into a covenant. Listen, Jonathan, I've promised to be your faithful friend. And so I've got to do this and be, be gentle and take care of me in the midst of this. And don't turn me over to your father. He says, listen, if if I've done anything wrong, kill me yourself. Just don't hand me over to your dad. David is basically saying, listen, I'm going to keep my word. 
This puts me in a terrible position, but I am going to keep my word. I promise to be your loyal friend, and I will. And I trust you. I trust you enough that I am putting my life in your hands. And in response to that, verse 9, Jonathan affirms his loyalty to David. He says, if I find out my father has evil intentions against you, believe me, I will tell you. All that remains now, verse 10, is uh, for them to figure out a way for Jonathan to communicate what it is that he learns about his father to David. And so Jonathan comes up with a rather ridiculously complicated secret signal system. It's like a couple of junior high boys figuring out a secret language. <laughs> you know, it, since it's safer for David not to be in Gibeah, they go out of the city. They go to a place where Jonathan can shoot some arrows and David can hide nearby. And they agree to meet there again in a few days. And again, Jonathan affirms his loyalty to David. Verse 12, by the Lord. The God of Israel, he's making a vow again. I will sound out my father. And if I find out that he's favorable toward you, I will send for you and tell you and make you tell me that I was right all along. And if my father intends evil, I will tell you and send you away. Jonathan says, no matter how this turns out, I will remain your loyal friend. Now stop and think for a minute what that meant for Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's heir. He's the crown prince. He's going to be the next king. Unless, of course, David lives. If David lives, then David will be the king. Uh, because David is the anointed yet not yet crowned king. And so you have to wonder. Does Jonathan understand this dynamic? Does he realize that this is the situation? Does he understand that if David lives, that he himself will never be the king? I think he does. Uh, look partway through verse 13. There Jonathan says, may the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. You see, Jonathan realizes that God's spirit his Holy Spirit that came upon Saul when he was made king came upon him in order to empower him in the role of king, that it had since departed from Saul. And so Jonathan prays that God's Holy Spirit would now rest on David, not upon himself. Jonathan seems to know, David, it's going to be you. I'm not going to be king. You're the one who's going to be king. Uh, just look at verse 14. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. David, you're going to be the one in power. I'm going to be the one who's going to be at your mercy. But if I die, he says, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan knows he gets it. His life is in a precarious position. Understand this. Being the guy who was going to be king but is no longer going to be king, that's really bad for your life expectancy. Uh, when a new regime takes over, understand this, everyone associated with the old regime, especially, of course, the heir apparent, oh, they were often murdered. So Jonathan, just like David, in order to keep his vow to God of loyal friendship, is going to have to place himself in a place of great vulnerability, 
of having to trust. But that's what he vowed. He vowed loyal friendship. And what is friendship if it's not trusting someone else to look out for you as you choose to look out for them? Verse 16, Jonathan, one more time, reaffirms this covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable, once again swearing to David his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. You know, you and I, we read this, and Jonathan's commitment to being David's friend seems so unusually intense uh, was, and I think it is, compared to what uh, most of us experience in life. Uh, but understand this. Uh, their love for each other is merely normal according to what Scripture calls us to. Consider for a moment Romans chapter 12, there verse 10. And there uh, God's word tells you and I that we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, devoted. We're to be devoted to each other, and we are to seek to outdo each other in honoring one another. We're not to just be polite, casual acquaintances, but we are to be devoted in brotherly love, seeking to, to honor each other. First uh, Peter 4.8, above all, maintain constant love, or most translations uh, give us fervent love, passionate, strong, intense love for one another. Anyway, this isn't a casual thing, but the body of Christ, we are to be connected by a fervent love for each other. 1 Peter 1.22, show sincere brotherly love for each other. From a pure heart, love one another constantly. Oh, and the greatest, the greatest of these commands from Jesus himself, John chapter 13, verse 34, love one another, how? As I've loved you. You want to know how to love one, each other, one another? Love one another the way Jesus has loved you, sacrificially. Sacrificially, in a way that is so costly, so all-consuming. Love one another. Friends, don't look at David and Jonathan's selfless friendship here and say, wow, that's something exceptional. No, 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 no. See it as something that is prototypical, as a target at which we are to aim our lives, as an example of what our fellowship with each other is supposed to look like. After all, Jesus following up, on that says in verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. May the world look at us. May the world see how we relate with each other. And may it be so inexplicable to them that there is no other way to understand it than to realize that it is the love of God poured out through us for each other. Well, here's their overcomplicated secret signal system. Uh, verse 20, Jonathan tells David, I'll shoot three arrows. By the way, he never shot three arrows. Um, but I'll shoot three arrows, then I will send a servant to find them. Now, if I say... 
The arrows are on this side of you. Get them. Then come because it is safe for you and there is no problem. But if I say the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord is sending you away. And then in verse 23, Jonathan again vows that he will keep his word. And in verse 24, David hid and Jonathan went to dinner. At the new moon, the king sat down uh, there with Jonathan, his son, and with Abner, his general. And yes, David's place was empty. But Saul didn't say anything. He was thinking, well, something came up. David must be ceremonially unclean. Understand, uh, because this was a ritualistic religious meal, a celebration, uh, in order to participate in it, you had to be clean, not physically, but ceremonially, ritually. For example, if David had accidentally touched something that was dead earlier that day, he would have had to have washed himself in water and then waited 24 hours before he would then be considered clean. Oh, but look, verse 27, the next day, David's place was still empty. And so Saul asked Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the mill either yesterday or today? And notice Saul is so bent, he won't even say David's name. He just keeps calling him Jesse's son. And Jonathan's answer, verse 28, does not help. Oh, David asked my permission to go to Bethlehem and I let him go. Hope that's okay. Um, he was going to celebrate with his family instead of celebrating here with you. Verse 30, then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That is a rather um, diplomatic and polite translation <laughs> of a genuinely crude epithet that you are probably familiar with. <laughs> Saul continues, don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame? Don't you understand that every day Jesse's son lives, you and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him. Bring him to me. He must die. Yeah. Saul lays it all on the table, doesn't he? David is a threat. To, to Saul's hold on the throne and therefore to Jonathan's future. If David lives, yes, he will be king. And if David is king, then Saul and Jonathan, well, they won't be. And that is reason enough for Saul to want David dead. Because more than anything, Saul craves the power and the prestige of being king. But not Jonathan. Jonathan, he doesn't get it. And he assumes there must be some other reason. And so he questions his father, verse 32. What? Why? Why must he die? What has he done? And Saul's answer to that question is rather swift and, well, should we say, to the point. Verse 33, <laughs> Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. And then comes the greatest uh, understatement of the chapter. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, good job, Sherlock. You figured it out. So Jonathan was grieved, or we would understand that probably embarrassed by his father's shameful behavior. And so in verse 35, Jonathan keeps his promise. 
and in the morning, distraught as he was, he went to meet with David, telling his servant, run, find the arrows that I shoot. And Jonathan shot an arrow behind him. Now that took some faith, didn't it? I mean, here's this distraught guy. Hey, I'm going to shoot an arrow in a minute. You just run out there and I'll shoot it towards you. <laughs> Are we sure this is how we want to do it? But he does it. He runs and, and, and Jonathan shouts out, the arrow is beyond you. And the guy's like, yeah, I know I'm here. I, I see it. I, I've got it right here. And in other words, he's shouting to David, flee, run. And he adds in hurry and don't stop. And the, the kid with the arrow's like, OK. Um, and so it, then despite using their secret code, uh, to deliver the message, neither David nor Jonathan are content to part without saying goodbye. And so verse 38, Jonathan sends the servant back into Gibeah. And verse 41, when the servant is gone, David comes out of hiding. So much for the secret code. And, and he falls face down on the ground, paying homage to Jonathan three times. You see, David knows. David knows what Jonathan has given up for him. David knows the position that Jonathan has put him in by protecting him. David knows this all could have gone very differently. Hey, Jonathan had great opportunity and he had a lot of motivation, carnal motivation, and he had all of King Saul's power to betray David, but he didn't. He didn't, and it's not because he didn't want to be king. It's because he'd sworn to God. He'd taken a vow. And even though on the day that he made that vow, he didn't know what that vow was going to cost him later on. Yet he made a vow, and he was going to keep that vow. He was going to keep his word. In order to do that, he had to put himself at risk, just like David did. He had to consider not just what he wanted and what was good for him, but what would be best for the one that he swore that he would be a loyal friend to. They had to consider the other as more important than themselves. They did with friends, with spouses, should do for each other. They acted in love toward each other even when it was hard and when it was costly. They chose the path of selflessness, of sacrifice. They were trustworthy and dependable. And then it says that he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Now, understand, please. There is nothing sexual here. Uh, it was a perfectly normal, platonic expression of sincere and heartfelt friendship. It, did you know that even in our day in Argentina, Serbia, or Italy, uh, this would be perfectly normal? I know suddenly none of us have a desire to visit Argentina, Serbia, or Italy, but it, it, it's a fact. And so now in parting, Jonathan, one last time, commits himself to this vow of loyal friendship. Verse 42, Jonathan said to David, go in the assurance that 
the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Jonathan says, I'll be faithful. And the best way I can be your loyal friend is to let you flee. This isn't how they imagined it would go on that day. You remember that day when David killed Goliath and these two young warriors celebrating together found a friend. They fought side by side. They vowed loyal friendship to each other. They imagined probably that they would fight side by side at the head of God's army until they were old and gray. That isn't how it's going to go. And yet, even though things did not go the way that they thought they would, the way they hoped they would, the way they thought they should, they chose to keep their word, to keep their vow. And so then David left and Jonathan went into the city. They go their separate ways. And Jonathan, for a season, goes back to being the crown prince, though we read almost nothing of him from this point on. Well, David goes into hiding. <laughs> and for years, he will run from Saul, crying out to God and being shaped by God into the man that God desires him to be as he leads God's people. Jonathan did not betray David when he had the opportunity. He was loyal to him. He kept his vow even when David was vulnerable. And David, David kept his vow to Jonathan, not only putting himself at risk for the sake of his friend, but later in life, even caring for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, even though Mephibosheth turned out to be a, not a great guy. <laughs> They kept their word. They did what they said. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, you would make us into the kind of people who keep our word, Lord, who value integrity and loyalty and trustworthiness and honor and dependability, and that, that love each other the way that, that Jesus has commanded us to love each other. God, that, that our connection with others in the body would, uh, would begin to look like less like a, a casual association and more like sincere and fervent brotherly love. God, that you would bind us together, that you would grow us in our care and our concern for each other. God, that, that we would find a greater ability to love each other as we more clearly know your love for us. God, I pray that you would do that to such an extent that we would love each other so well and with such devotion that the world would see, that this lost, dying, hurting, and desperate world would see the love of the body of Christ and that there would be no other explanation that there is a God who is real, who is pouring out his love in us and through us for each other.
God, may you work that in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's true. We, we don't have that in us to love each other that well. Um, the well of our love is not that deep, and if we're honest, it quite often runs dry. And so we've got to find a source for love to be able to love each other with that kind of power and intensity, with that kind of durability. And you know, the source of our love, you know this, it's Jesus. First John, there in chapter 4, verse 19, it tells us that, that we gain the ability to love through soaking up through receiving the love of God for us. That it is as God has loved us that we then gain the ability to love each other. And so this morning as we end our time in worship together, we are going to have opportunity to come to the table of communion. And remember this, what the table of communion is about is a reminder for us of what our Savior did for us. In other words, it's a reminder of just how great and how powerful, how deep his love for us is. And not just as a group, but individually. That Jesus' love for you is so great that he was willing to go to the cross, not only to suffer what he suffered and to die like he died, but to bear our sin, to take our guilt upon himself. May you this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, absolutely marinate your heart in the reality of God's unfathomable love for you and may it flavor you and may it fill to the brim and even overflow the well of your love that you might be able to go out from here and to love durably and to love passionately as we worship you're going to have opportunity to come to the table and if you belong to Jesus, and this is, this is for you. And you can take one of the pairs of cups. The bottom cup has a nugget of bread in it. The top, a swallow of juice. You can return to your seat, and there you can marinate for a minute. You can ponder. You can reflect upon the love of the Savior for you. That's what the bread and the, the cup are about. It's a reminder of what Jesus did with his disciples, a reminder that he gave them on that last night that they were together as they were sharing a dinner and Jesus gave them bread and he said, take and eat this. This is my body. Broken for you, given for you. Later on that same night, he took the cup and he said, take and drink this. This is the promise of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Remember the reality, the power of the Savior's love for you. Let your heart and your mind soak it up that you might be filled to overflowing with the ability to love each other. Father, we thank you for today, for this opportunity, for this time, and we ask that you would, you would break through to our hearts. God, if our hearts are cold, 
if we have dismissed your love or disallowed it, if we have thought that we're the only ones that you don't love, if we had thought that your love wasn't for us, but just in general, God, may today we understand, may we receive it as a gift from you. And may it change us. May you be honored in this time. We're unworthy, Lord. You are so gracious. We thank you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.